Welcome to episode 17 of Pub Crawl, a publishing podcast about reading, writing, books, and occasionally booze. I'm your host, S.J. Jones, called J.J. I'm an author and erstwhile editor. And I'm your co-host, Kelly Van Sant. I am a contracts manager and a freelance editor. We are both contributors with the Publishing Crawl blog, and together we have over 15 years of industry experience. And today's topic is romance. Um, because we're not above capitalizing on a cheap uh, Hallmark holiday. (laughs) (laughs) Fictional crush time. Yeah, and this is just something that I like to discuss with Kelly anyway, so we just figured that we might as well turn the mics on while we do it. (laughs) Mm -hmm. I have a lot of feelings, and I get really emotionally involved in my fiction. (laughs) (laughs) Whereas... You know, when I was working in publishing, I was sort of, I had this reputation in in the publishing house as being anti-feelings in that I just, whenever I got books in and I just was like, oh, it's just too many feelings in it. And I had a very specific definition of feelings, wherein basically I would be reading a manuscript and, you know, there'd be like, you know, romance in it, which I enjoy romances and books a lot, but with where the hormones and the emotions, the protagonist was feeling on the romantic front would just overwhelm all common sense mm-hmm. and any sort of rational decision-making. And I just, I, I loathe stories like this where I'm just like, stop. Like, I know he's hot or I know she's hot, but just like, it doesn't mean you can't think like a clear-headed human being, mm-hmm. especially if the world is ending, which a lot of these manuscripts, <laughs> this was kind of in the the dystopian post-apocalyptic boom. So I was reading, getting a lot of these manuscripts. Where I was like, you guys, the world has ended. Mm-hmm. <laughs> there are more important things than whether or not the hot boy is noticing you. So, yeah, I don't really like books with feelings in them, but I love books with romances in them. Yeah, I am like you in that, you know, and and we're going to talk to later on in the podcast about maybe um, some of the romance tropes that we're not quite so fond of, (laughs) as much as the ones that, you know, we really do love and enjoy. Um, And that should be a spirited discussion. But I'm like you in that um, my romances really need to be character driven. I'm, I'm not really big on love it for sight. You know, like I see him from across the room and my breath catches in my throat and he is just the most beautiful broken boy that I've ever seen. (laughs) You know, like that kind of Mm. a thing doesn't really, I guess I don't really believe in that in real life. And so it doesn't move me very much in fiction. (laughs) You know, I believe that you can be instantly attracted to someone and that you can feel an instant connection with someone, whether romantic or platonic or that strange in-between space where you have friendships so intense that they feel romantic, even though perhaps there's no um, physical or like overtly romantic tones to it, but it's just a friendship so intense that it's like, it it feels romantic in some ways. Um, I believe that you can meet a person and have a connection with them, but, Mm -hmm. but I don't, I, I just don't believe it the way that it's usually written in fiction, it's, 
it seems really superficial. And I think that one of the things about feeling that instant connection with someone is that, you know, then you go back and that connection spurs you to deepen the relationship and to get to know that other person better in these really intimate ways. And I feel like sometimes books just like gloss over that part of it. <laughs> like we just have the instant connection and deep love and then everything is tragic and chaotic at all times. Yeah. I feel like it, you have the instant connection, but there's not a lot of time spent building upon the instant connection. So it mm-hmm. feels like the insta love trope because mm-hmm. It goes very quickly from, I feel attracted to this person and I feel connection to this person to, I'm in love with this person. And perhaps the most famous example that I can think of is Twilight, where she, I think, has like a grand total of like three meetings with Edward or something like that. And then she's like, of three things Mm -hmm. I'm a certain, I don't remember the exact quote, but you know, (laughs) at the end of it was like, you know, she knows that he's a vampire and that she was like irrevocably (laughs) in love with him. And I was like, what? (laughs) I remember reading that for the first time be like, wait, what? That came awful quick. I know. It's like you haven't had a conversation yet. Like you haven't, like you haven't spoken to each other yet. You can't be in love with somebody. Yeah, yet. I'm pretty sure you think that he hates you. So I'm, I was like, I don't really understand. Um, but yeah, we can we can definitely get, you know, a little bit more into our own personal prefaces. <laughs> but uh, let's just start off talking with what makes a good romance mm-hmm. uh, and what makes a bad one, both for us personally as readers and also sort of maybe a little bit more objectively as editors and, you know, people publishing people like, what do we think makes a good romance? Mm-hmm. I think there has to be some kind of tension. The, there has to be some tension between the characters. There doesn't, And I don't mean tension in that, like, there's some obstacle keeping them apart and they're star-crossed or whatever. That is a certain type of romance. And in that case, the tension is, you know, that they're House Montague and House Capulet and they can never be together. Um, Mm -hmm. You know, but even when there is no external force separating the couple, there has to be some kind of tension. Either they're working together towards something or they're working on opposite sides of something or they're, I mean, there has to be some, some sort of attention there within the relationship. Yeah. I mean, it, it, for me on a subjective level, what makes a good romance is a slow burn, you know, when I love those. uh, Yeah. I love the slow burn romance and those are actually extremely difficult to do well. Mm-hmm. I think they're probably of all the romance kind of arcs and stories that you can have in books. I think the slow burn is actually the hardest to pull off. Um, but I think what makes a good romance to me, good characterization leads to good romance when I believe these characters as human beings and mm-hmm. also can see why these two human beings would be attracted to and fall in love with each other, that is what makes a good romance for me. Even if the romance is, you know, very understated or not the point of the story and, you know, it's kind of takes a backseat and it's like the B story mm-hmm. or whatever, but I can see why this relationship would work in real life due to the characterization, 
that is what makes a good romance for me in mm-hmm. particularly. And that's pretty fluid because there's so many different stories you can tell with love stories in them. So, but as long as the characterization is there, I think you are halfway to a good romance. Absolutely. And I, I mean, character characterization and character development are some of the main things that I look for in writing in general, that that's Mm -hmm. an element that I really need to have a successful story, let alone a successful romance. Uh, but I agree with you that it's vital in terms of a romance because romances are all about interpersonal connections. And if you have two avatars or two husks of people that don't seem fully realized, then how can you possibly have any real heat between them? Yeah. I think that's, I think good characterization is half of a a good romance. And then the other half is, as Kelly had mentioned, tension, which really ties in with storytelling, how you are able to carry interpersonal tension throughout your book, the sort of the plot happenings that move the relationship forward or take it a step backward, things like that. I think that's the other half of what makes a good romance. So good character development and good storytelling, like the ability to parcel out bits of character development over the course of your book in such a way that that heightens the emotions of the characters and makes the reader want ultimately want the two characters to end up together. Mm-hmm. So for us, that's what makes a good romance. So what makes a bad one? Oh, (laughs) (laughs) I mean, the the easy answer to that, you know, is just the opposite of what makes a good romance. If there's no tension, if the characters are, you know, blank slates or Mary Sue's, you know, then who really cares? These could be any people, you know, any hot people running into any other hot people and, you know, being hot together. That's like, <laughs> that's not really a compelling romance for me. It's not something that I root for, I guess. Um, because for me, I really want to root for the romances in the stories that I read. I almost kind of want to ship the characters before they realize that they ship themselves. <laughs> oh yeah. I love that. I love that. I want them, you know, to get together before the book is even aware that it wants them to get together. So that's one of the tropes that I really like. But, you know, just being hot and just being tragic, because I think those two things tend to go hand in hand a lot um, in recent trends in publishing over the last few years is that, you know, you have this either manic pixie dream girl who is covering for a dark, you know, a dark inner turmoil, or you have this badly broken, beautiful boy who has some horrific, you know, family abuse or tragedy that, you know, he's suffering from. And so you have these people who are devastatingly gorgeous and devastatingly broken and they find one another and somehow, you know, fix each other or something. And I mean, and that's just not compelling (laughs) at all to me. Yeah. I think for me, what makes a bad romance, aside from what we'd mentioned before, you know, lack of good character development and tension is when the issue of consent is muddy or dubious. Well, yes, that's a huge problem. (laughs) 
is a huge problem. And I don't necessarily mean in sexual situations, although that's obviously clearly a big one for me, but it's just like, sometimes you read books and it's the, um, the ducky problem or the, in uh, my so-called life, her next door neighbor, what's his name? Brian? It's Brian, right? Her next door neighbor. Oh, Krakow. Brian Krakow. Yes. Yes. Brian Krakow. (laughs) Brian Krakow. Um, and you know, he clearly is like in love with her, but she isn't. And I, you know, I'd never ship the two of them together because I just didn't like this idea that he, just because he liked her, she should be with him. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, that kind of a thing where sometimes it feels a little bit like by the end of the book that they've only been paired off because they should be paired off just because plot reasons or just because one or the other one feels like a consolation prize or yeah, giving in or, you know, I, I don't like those romances. And that's right. what like I mean I, by consent. I wore her down and she finally said yes. Mm-hmm. And she finally said yes. Or it just feels... You know, I want both parties to be wholeheartedly into the romance because that's what makes it satisfying for me. And if I don't sense that from one or the other party, then that's when the romance fails. When mm-hmm. when the book hasn't convinced me that both are equally enthusiastic about the romance that they're part of. So that is when I think a romance fails for me. Mm-hmm. Another time that romances fail for me are when the characters have a clear reason to despise one another. You know, one of them has done the other character a serious wrong. Um, and it, you know, it's acknowledged in the book that this one character did something horrible to this other character, to this other character's family or whatever. And yet, despite all these logical reasons that you would have, to despise this other person somehow like your attraction overrides it. Yeah. And that is weird for me too, because I can understand that human beings are complex and that you can be attracted to people, even if you don't like people. And like, there's like attraction and all of these emotions are nuanced and complicated and layered and you can have conflicting emotions at the same time. And I get all of that. But I also think that some books present us with these couples that, you know, by all means should honestly despise one another or they're true enemies and have done horrific things to one another. And the book spends all this time investing in this conflict. And then the resolution to the conflict is just, but our sexual attraction is so intense. Mm-hmm. And that doesn't really solve any of the larger problems, which are all the horrible things that these characters have done to one another. <laughs> and so I really need those things to be addressed. Like, you you can't just have your sexual attraction override everything that someone has done to you and all the ways that they've wronged you. You actually have to address those problems and solve those issues in a satisfactory manner, or I just can't root for that romance because I don't believe it. I don't believe that someone, you know, would fall in love with, you know, someone else who did these terrible things. Yeah. Yeah. So make sure that consent is obvious on both sides. (laughs) Mm -hmm. That's, that's a big one for us. And also sexual attraction doesn't override everything at all. I think Mm -hmm. 
that it, there's definitely books that I've read where I'm just like, I just can't get over the fact that, I don't know, one or the other, like they've murdered members of their family or, you know, there's just like something huge that's in the way yeah. of their romance that I'm like, that can't be solved by the healing power of love, okay? that That's solved by therapy and actual, like, showing the receipts that you've redeemed yourself somehow or feel remorse. And even then, there's going to be a lot of problems <laughs> in the relationship. Basically, when reality intrudes upon the romance in, mm-hmm. in a bad way like that, that's when I'm just like, Mm-mm, I'm out. I, I, I don't support this romance. I'm done. Yeah. So... I think those are what Mm. we think are good and bad romances. Mm -hmm. So then why don't we kind of discuss like common tropes in romances, tropes that we see, storylines that you can pull from, um, right when you write a story, um, you know, there's sort of these time honored ones that we've discussed earlier. We talked about the love at first sight, Mm -hmm. which neither Kelly and I particularly enjoy all that much, but you know, there's things like friends to lovers, the star-cross lovers, which actually doesn't mean what people think it means. Mm-hmm. <laughs> star-crossed lovers doesn't mean like they're on opposite sides of a, the ideological divide like Romeo and Juliet. It means that they both die. <laughs> that's that's what the meaning of star-crossed mm-hmm. is. It's just doomed. So, so the star-crossed lover is is that they both die, you guys. It's not it's not like a forbidden romance because mm-hmm. Romeo and Juliet is also a forbidden romance. But the star-crossed part, <laughs> the star-crossed part means that they both die. <laughs> Spoiler. So those are a mm-hmm. couple of common ones. <laughs> There's a uh, bicker, bicker, kiss, kiss, which is you know sort of the the coworkers or the like his girl his gal friday the old uh, black and white movie with Cary Grant where you know they're just constantly at each other's throats the entire time but it underlies you know beneath that is a a smoldering attraction yeah like much ado about nothing beatrice mm-hmm. and benedict you know they're always at each other but you can tell it's because they really are attracted to each other <laughs> um this one the slap slap kiss kiss doesn't always work for me. I think sometimes it does. Sometimes it works really well. Like Han and Leia from Star Wars, it works really well for me. And yet in other relationships, it doesn't like it. For example, it doesn't work for me in Ron and Hermione's relationship. Mm -hmm. So for me, it, it can kind of depend because sometimes the bicker, bicker part is really them sniping at each other mm-hmm. and I don't get the sense that it's because they are attracted together to each other it's that they actually don't like each other right or they don't respect each other and that's a problem for me I think a vital part of the bicker bicker kiss kiss trope is that the two people in the couple have to be equals and it has to be they have to be acknowledging that they're equals and that they're you know, the, the barbs that they're trading back and forth are, no one is condescending to the other person. No one thinks that they're above the other Mm -hmm. person. It's a clear, you know, meeting of the minds. We are on this equal playing field and we are trading, you know, quip for quip sort of a thing. And I think if you remove that element of respect, that's when the trope starts to fall apart a little bit. 
Yeah, the the snarky. I mean, my own personal preference is a little bit more of a gentler romance. Anyway, not quite so antagonistic. Which a lot of the like the thirty screwball comedies, which I love. I love a good screwball comedy. Uh, it is kind of very much like a verbal sparring kind of a relationship, which it can be a lot of fun. But I also, I personally tend to like the the gentler romance tropes like friends to lovers is a pretty big one for Mm -hmm. me i do like do like that a lot but again that can also fall flat if i (laughs) if the friends part and they're presented as friends and they come across as siblings to me first and then like all of a sudden one day they develop an attraction to each other that to me is weird and I don't buy into that. But I do like, you know, been friends for a long time. We really care about each other and we have a very intense relationship. Like, I like that a lot. But if the two parties of this romance are sort of presented as, we're like brother and sister, and then all of a sudden we're in love. Yeah. Eh, no. <laughs> it doesn't no, really work for I me. I agree. I wonder how, do you think as a reader, the types of romances that you enjoy or gravitate toward have changed over the years as you've gotten older. Because part, partly I wonder, is it my age that makes me less interested in some of the more common romance tropes right now? Actually, mine haven't. Mine have been pretty consistent since I was very young. I've always liked the there is a particular romance type that you see in Korean dramas a lot that it doesn't actually have a necessarily a western equivalent but um it's like what what in Korea the oppa relationship oppa basically means older brother to a younger sister but it, it it's also a term of affection and endearment and a sign of intimacy so you can call any boy who is older than you oppa and oppa that person takes kind of a protective looks out for you kind of a relationship and in a lot of korean dramas the sort of oppa relationship can turn romantic um, but there's no real, there's not like a sibling attachment. It's it's a little bit hard to explain if if you're not familiar with Korean culture. But the sort of opa, 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 and then like the little, the younger sister, quote unquote. That yeah, it sounds much more incestuous than I'm, <laughs> than it actually is. But <laughs> that sort of intense caring for somebody and being and looking out for that person's best interests in an altruistic way that romance type has always been something that I've liked ever since I was little mm-hmm. so I'm wasn't ever really big in into the the mysterious loner dude I always preferred the class clown mm-hmm. you know if if you can make me laugh then that is the quickest way into my heart um, and I've, I've always been consistent with that. My tastes in romances actually hasn't changed all that much. Hmm. I think that's interesting. I don't think that mine have really changed either. If I look at the romances that I like, they're very similar. I also love, um, friends to lovers romances. Um, I do like bicker, bicker, kiss, kiss a lot, uh, for me personally, but I, I do tend to like the less, 
I guess the less steamy. I think steamy is a big thing in romances right now. It's like very passionate and um, lusty and fiery. And it's like this intense, intense feeling. Um, And that sometimes when I read those, I get a little overwhelmed by them or I don't connect emotionally to them as well. And I, I don't know if that, you know, I, I don't know how much that has to do with my place in life or where I'm at, you know, with my own romantic relationship now, you know, I am married and have a very stable, loving, wonderful relationship with my husband. And it's very different than, you know, when I was 16 and like falling in love for the first time and everything was very tumultuous. And I read a lot of YA and a lot of YA romances are about finding that first love. And so it has that, you know, that intensity that I remember feeling when I was 16 and I have the old journal entries and terrible poetry to prove it. (laughs) And so, you know, part of me wonders if like, if I'm just not the right audience for that type of romance anymore, because I've just evolved beyond it. (laughs) (laughs) And if I had maybe read some of these things when I was 16, if that would have made a difference, but I don't know. I was too busy reading like classics when I was 16. So I guess we'll never know. (laughs) I don't, I don't know. Cause you know, I did have intense crushes when I was a teenager, but I never, the difference is I liked the state of having a crush, but I didn't really want to be in a relationship. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And so a lot of what works for me in YA is that like intense feeling of, of being in a crush or having one and that sort of magnetic attraction that you have to somebody. But, and that's kind of why I like YA because it often ends at the point where they've gotten together. Uh-huh. Like that's where the book ends. Like they get together and that's, and it doesn't, you don't have to worry about the relationship afterwards. Uh-huh. So, and of course that's not all YA, but that is kind of the YA I gravitate toward, towards with those sorts of storylines in them. So I don't know the, the particularly overtly, basically the overtly sexual romances. And I don't mean like they have sex on the page or anything like that, but where it's like, oh, so-and-so's really hot. It doesn't work for me, and I don't think it ever has, and I don't think it ever will, because often the people that I developed crushes on, it wasn't because I thought they were hot. Mm-hmm. Most of the time, I developed crushes on people because of, you know, I liked being in their company or something Mm -hmm. about them stimulated me uh, intellectually, emotionally, or whatever it was. So for me, the, the hot factor doesn't, is not, it just makes me uncomfortable to be completely frank. (laughs) Just, I don't want to read about that. It's just like, you can keep your, um, you can keep your fantasies to yourself. That's okay. You don't really need to share that with me, protagonist. Mm-hmm. It's fine. <laughs> like, I think mm-hmm. for me, one of the things is too, is that one of the things that I find the most hot or the most attractive um, are skills or talents. People mm-hmm. that mm-hmm. really excel at a particular thing is immensely attractive to me. And it does not matter what the thing is. It could be anything, but if, if somebody can do it really well, I find that so attractive. But if a character can't do anything or doesn't do anything, 
then it's hard for me to latch on to, and I, I need something more than just a physical beauty. Yeah. More than, more than beauty or wealth. <laughs> they have to have something other than that to recommend them as romantic interests. Mm-hmm. I think for me, my favorite fairy tale has always been beauty and the beast. Mm-hmm. And I don't just mean the Disney version, although I love the Disney version a lot, but I actually mean the original fairy tale where the beast is hideous, but kind. He is somebody like, you know, he's a kind person and he just happens to look monstrous. I actually like that story because it's, then it really is about the two of them falling in love with who they are as people and not what they look like. And so that is, I think, subconsciously what I always search for in romances, two characters, like even if they were both hideous or even if they, you know, like basically the phys- the way they look does not matter to each other. To me, that's far more romantic is that they've fallen in love with each other for who they are. Mm-hmm. So anytime physicality is brought into attraction, I'm a little bit like, mm just it doesn't really bother me and it doesn't necessarily turn me off it's just eh, it's just not a personal preference of mine it's just like eh, i'm just gonna skim over this like because i don't really care and then i of course i'll also make up the way the character looks in my head that may completely contradict the way they are written on the page because to me however so-and-so is described may not actually be attractive to me like you know so yeah, the the sort of like super steamy romances. I'm kind of like, nah, not for me. Yeah. What do you think about love triangles or quadrangles or any other geometric arrangement of people with feelings? <laughs> uh, I'm not a huge fan of the triangle, but. I don't necessarily mind when several people are involved in a really messy love polygon. If it's just one person who has to choose between two love interests, I'm not so fond of that. Mm -hmm. Uh, Because I think just as human beings, it's never that clear cut. It's never that this or that kind of a thing. But when you have sort of these messy love polygon relationships, you know, so-and-so may love someone, but this person may love someone else and it may be requited, but they have other obstacles in the way. Like that to me is much more realistic. So I don't mind when there's several people involved in, in one of these geometric arrangements. <laughs> it's, it's just the triangle I don't really like. And I also don't like the, the singular, you know, per, like protagonist with like five love interests. Mm-hmm. I, I don't like that either, <laughs> which is not actually a shape. It's actually just like the spoke of a wheel. Yeah. It starts to feel like the bachelor or some, one of those reality shows. <laughs> so, but yeah, I don't like that arrangement, but when it's a whole bunch of people involved and they, it's all messy and, and complicated that I enjoy, but like the very simple triangle and, and the love, spoke of a wheel. Mm -hmm. I'm not such a, (laughs) doesn't work for me. I'm trying to think of more examples of the kind of the messy multiple romances, crisscrossing among groups of people sort of a thing. And the only one I can think of right now is the mists of Avalon. Yes. Where basically everybody in that book is sleeping with everybody else. (laughs) (laughs) 
whether they're related or not related or married or not married or who cousins or whatever. Like everybody in that book is just sleeping with everybody else. Yep. <laughs> and they're all in love with different people and none of the love is requited. And it's like this whole big thing. And I actually did find that book really compelling. Oh, I love um, The Mist of Avalon. I think I read it when I was like 14. Yeah. It's like the I know, perfect me too. age I read it to read school. that book, really. <laughs> Yeah, and I did. Like, I would get really... And, and it's funny because I would, like, ship different pairs of people. I would ship her with this one and then her with the other one, and it was fine, even though it was, you know, that that was... But I can't think of any other book off the top of my head beyond that one that has that kind of a situation in it. Yeah, I think... And I, I'm sure they exist. Yeah. I just can't think of them. Yeah, they're not coming to me off the top of my head. I mean, again, I'm going to go back to Korean dramas. This love polygon situation exists in Korean dramas a lot. Um, and, and to me that has always felt real, you know, so-and-so there's always obviously the main couple that, you know, are going to end up together by the end of the drama, but you know, there's the best friend who has so-and-so's interests at heart. And then there's, you know, this other person, it's just, it's messy and it's complicated. And I like that. But yeah, I, the the sort of messy configuration in a book, mm-hmm. I can't think of. I can't think of one. I don't. I'm sh- like like you said. I'm sure that they exist, but I I just I can't think of one right now. Mm-hmm. I think the problem with the love triangle as a reader, and I think actually there's lots of problems with the love triangle. <laughs> <laughs> but I think one of the main problems with the love triangle is that. You're almost never the 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 character is undecided. Whoever is at the center of the triangle can't choose between the two suitors. But the reader has chosen between the two suitors. Yes. Yes. As a reader, I will pick one of the two and say, "Okay, this is the one that I want." And then even if the protagonist is undecided, I'm not. And so then it just becomes about reading through the book to find out whether or not I'm right. And, you know, and that isn't really as interesting to me or as compelling because, you know, it, I feel like it's so difficult to make, to hold that balance where it seems like either choice could be plausible. You know that there's one that's going to be the one. And very rarely is it an upset. I I really can't think of any love triangles where the outcome wasn't obvious. It might not have been the outcome I wanted, but it was the obvious outcome. Um, And I just think that 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 is an example of where there's there's just no tension there. Like, you just know what's going to happen. And it's not enjoyable as a reader to sit there while the protagonist is going back and forth and do I love this one or do I love that one? And, oh, when I'm with this one, my heart sings. But, oh, when I'm with that one, you know, I'm 10 inches off the ground and it's just like, oh, (laughs) God. (laughs) No, I don't want to read about this anymore. I, the love triangle, I always, the one I want to quote win. And this is the problem with the love triangle is that it always feels like there's a winning side and a losing side. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, It's not helped by that team mentality either. No, it's not. And I will admit, I totally played into that with the hunger games because I am, I'm going to say I'm team PETA Mm -hmm. and I had been pretty much since PETA's first appearance in that book. 
and I, and, but I, that was, that was actually a love triangle. I understood. Me too. Because this is somebody who like, you know, PETA is somebody that she's had to forge a relationship with on camera. And so there's, was a performative aspect to that, but it didn't mean that she doesn't care about him as a person either. And then of course there's the boy from back home, the person that she grew up with, the one that she knew she could rely on to take care of her family. Like this is to me a realistic love triangle mm-hmm. that she's sort of torn and conflicted because of the circumstances that had happened to her. Um, it didn't stop me from having a team, but it was one that I could see. Oh, absolutely. One that I could understand. And as a character too, Katniss is emotionally repressed about everything, yes. not just about romance. And so it's believable that she would be caught in the middle of this and not be able to recognize or understand her own romantic feelings because of the unique person that she's in and the unique circumstances that she's been through in her life, that's actually plausible. Yes. (laughs) Whereas I feel like a lot of times that kind of waffling doesn't make sense for a character. But for Katniss, I agree, that made sense. And I enjoyed that love triangle. I I mean, I enjoyed it, but I actually hated the way it it resolved itself. (laughs) I did too. (laughs) I really hated the way it ended, actually. We won't talk about it now, which we may talk about later, but I didn't like the way it resolved. Um, I didn't think it did any of the characters justice at all. Mm -hmm. So uh, I thought it made sense. Um, Mm -hmm. As, you know, just fitting in with the kinds of characters that they were and wise, it made sense to me. But not, it doesn't always, I mean, because to me, very commonly, the sort of love triangles that you see in books, it's often the hot new guy, mm-hmm. the mysterious hot new guy, and then the safe, dependable boy next door. <laughs> Who's um, it going to be? You saw this, you know, you see this in My So-Called Life. There you go. My So-Called Life had this, mm-hmm. clearly. Um, you had Jared Leto. There's no... <laughs> scenario in the world in which Jordan Catalano does not win. Exactly. Oh my God. Um, that, that was very realistic to me, even though Jordan Catalano is actually not a kind of guy I would go for at all. Like, ugh. Um, so like, ugh, I just ugh, don't, don't like that at all. And it, it, it's rare to see a true love triangle in that there is, you know, sort of the, the point, but the other two legs are connected as well. So, like, that's rare. That sort of configuration is rare. Where it's, you know, to choose one or the other, it just changes everyone's dynamic. And again, I don't mind those as much. I don't love triangles at all, but those I mind a little bit less because it it complicates everyone's relationship. So, those are some, I mean, those are some common tropes in romance. Obviously, there's a lot more than what we've discussed. I mean, you can, uh, again, if you want to lose hours of your life, you can go to tvtropes.com and they will list every possible kind of romance trope that you can think of on that website. Um, but these are just sort of the ones that we wanted to discuss for our podcast today, just, just common tropes that we see in books. Um, so why don't we talk about tropes that we'd love, that are our personal catnip, that it's like when you see this trope in a book, you, you're you going to immediately pick it up. <laughs> um, we've already talked a lot about friends to lovers, but I love that one uh, very much. I love, you know, you find those a lot in like coming of age stories. Like the classic one is um, Anne and Gilbert mm. from Anne of Green Gables and <sighs> that romance. Just, oh, I know. I know. <laughs> so, so, so many sighs. Yep. So good. 
mm-hmm. <laughs> it really and it really just is so perfect it's such a great great romance that develops and changes and um, but also because that has wonderful. elements of the bicker bicker kiss kiss as well mm-hmm. it starts out that way and then they become friends and then it becomes a friends to lovers story mm-hmm. so it 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 oh, i just it's so good <laughs> Mm-hmm. Well, the thing that I really love about that too, and that you know, is not just about friends to lovers, but Anne and Gilbert really challenge one another. They challenge one another academically. They're always vying for sort of the top spot in their class. They really push each other to do more and to be better, and inspire one another um, as they're challenging one another. And I think that is really great. I I I love that sense that um the person that you're romantically linked to helps you to grow yes and become more and become better and not in that way of like oh you complete me or oh i was only half a person until i met you because that's not what ann and gilbert are about they're both complete individual people but they have they align in their goals and they help one another pursue their goals and it's not it's a competition, but it's friendly competition and it's genial and they're genuinely proud of one another and happy for one another for each other's successes. And it's just a constant like pushing each other forward sort of a thing. Mm-hmm. And I mm-hmm. really love that. I think for me, anytime Beauty and the Beast mm-hmm. is even like remote in a book, <laughs> I'm there. Absolutely. That one's my favorite too. Just straight up there. I don't care. Um, there's several books that are, that either have elements of Beauty and the Beast or are straight up retellings that I really love. That is definitely something that will call to me right away. I think for me, another trope that I haven't really named, but that really I love is the emotionally stoic heroine and the emotionally fluid hero. Mm -hmm. So again, Katniss and Peeta. Katniss is very reserved and she doesn't really know what her feelings are like. And Peta is the exact opposite. He's, he knows what his feelings are and he's very much in touch with his emotions. And I really like that dynamic. And I particularly like it when it's exactly that configuration. The female mm-hmm. is stoic and the male is emotionally fluent. Mm-hmm. Cause it's the opposite um, of what you generally see. Yes, it is the opposite of what you genuinely see. And that one is a little bit like, real life for me. <laughs> I'm, I'm always the last to know what my own feelings are romantically. So for me, that's like, yep, that one hits close to home. So for me, that's definitely one that I love. That's, that's a bit, that's, that's my catnip for sure. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. Um, other, other romantic tropes that I like anything goth. <laughs> so, uh, I've mentioned this before, like on Twitter, I'm a huge fan of the trope death and the maiden, any sort of underworld story, Mm -hmm. any sort of story basically where death, it's like death is the romantic interest. And I know that is the most goth thing I've ever said, but (laughs) I really do. I love the sort of underworld tale. And I just, there are a lot of books where the, the love interest is kind of either literally death as in the book Ketra and Lord Death, or like metaphorically mm-hmm. death, 
or, you know, kind of a stand in for death. I just love those underworld tales and they're definitely a catnip for me too. And then this, if mm-hmm. I see one, I'm like, yep, I'm there. <laughs> totally there. <laughs> mm-hmm. I really like, um, like thief with a heart of gold love oh, stories yes. or yep. like, like lovable rogues or, you know, that sort of thing where somebody who is, you know, an upstanding do-gooder citizen is thrown together with somebody slightly less than upstanding, mm-hmm. <laughs> but, but, you know, but not evil or malicious, you know, there's sort of that underlayer of that's kind of, again, a Han Leia sort of a thing. Han Solo. Han Solo or, yeah. or anybody. I even think <laughs> this is a really silly reference, but I really love the Disney movie Tangled. Um, I think it's adorable. Oh yeah. Flynn, Flynn Rider and, <laughs> <laughs> And Rapunzel is just, you know, this, like, big, doe-eyed, completely naive, you know, whatever. Um, but I really like that. It, you have to be careful with those because they can they can tow this line of, like, um, I don't know if it's consent so much, but just a strange power imbalance if, you know, the person is too naive or is too is being too deceived. Um, so I am particular about the way that that trope manifests, but I do like that trope. I'm a huge fan of the lovable rogue for me Mm -hmm. though. I love trickster figures of any kind, Mm -hmm. um, at all. Like my very first crush was Fox Robin hood, the Disney Fox Robin hood. Fox Robin is really hot. He is literally and <laughs> metaphorically a fox, you guys. <laughs> He's super hot. Um, but I, I do love, for me, it's, it's important that the rogue has his or her own code of honor mm-hmm. that he or she adheres to, mm-hmm. even if it's not the same code of honor as maybe everyone else but they have their own internal sense of honor that they adhere to and that they're, you know, they stick to that. That will, to me, will mitigate a lot of mm-hmm. the kind of tricky power dynamic issues. Um, and I mean, I'm not particularly fond of the naive ingenue. Yeah. Just either in men or women. I don't like that. And it's not my thing. Um, but the, the rogue with the heart of gold definitely, definitely is a, is a catnip mm-hmm. of mine for sure. Yeah. I guess, um, oh, no, go on. No, no, go on. I guess I was just going to say, yeah, I mean, I do agree with you in that the, you know, completely naive ingenue is not something that I enjoy either. I'm fine with someone who is, um, in a situation in which they have very little experience or are in over their head or, you know, are slightly naive in a specific way, as long as they have, you know, the ability to stand up for themselves and to, you know, they have a brain in their head and can kind of think on their feet and figure things out as they go. Um, but just like the blank slate damsel in distress, generic, like, you know, fainting flower, sort of a character is not something that I'm really into either. I think another one that I really love, this is definitely, this one toes morality much more than the rogue, but I love the evil mastermind. You do. (laughs) (laughs) I really do. Like, uh, okay. So one of the hottest characters in fiction that I love is Melisande Charizai from Jacqueline Carey's The Cushel series. Melisande mm-hmm. is 
this rich woman and she uh, is always making a bid for the throne and she's always got plots within plots within plots within plots. And she just, and she doesn't do it because she's evil. You know, she doesn't do it because she's like, you know, I, you know, I'm good, I'm power hungry or whatever. She does it for the love of the game. Mm-hmm. And I just, I love characters like that. I've always loved characters like that. The TV show Gargoyles. I don't know if you guys have heard of Gargoyles. Um, there is a, an antagonistic figure in it who doesn't always remain an antagonist. He is in some ways a trickster himself, uh, David Xanatos. And he's always got like a plan, you know, within a plan, within a plan, within a plan. And he was kind of the very first character. I think I remember having a crush on in that, in that sort of character type, mm-hmm. um, I, and the other one that everyone always looks at me weird for, but I love Benjamin Linus from Lost. I was going to say, because we were roommates when Lost was on, and we would watch <laughs> Lost, and you would lose your mind for Ben. And I don't know if it was necessarily romantic or not, but you loved I love that ben. character. I do. I and love Ben. Every time he ben. did something that made you want to throw something at the screen, because we would watch, we would have people come over to our apartment and watch Lost with us every week, and there would be like you know a group of like, four to six of us, depending. And all of us would be like screaming at the television, throwing things, being furious at whatever evil machinations Ben was up to at that point in the plot. And JJ would just be sitting on the couch with like big hearts in her eyes. (laughs) And then she would go to her room and she would like doodle little Ben cartoons with hams and stuff. (laughs) I think I have those still somewhere. I have to find those. Where it's just like characters like that, like, oh my god, I appreciate the evil mastermind, but I find them so frustrating. <laughs> yeah, I I don't know if it is that I necessarily have crushes on these characters or if I want to be them. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but I just, I love them whenever they show up. And like the other one that, and he's not actually a mastermind, but a character that I really loved is if you guys had seen Battlestar Galactica. Uh, Gaius Baltar, who everyone hates oh, yeah. except me. I love Gaius Baltar. <laughs> <laughs> like, everyone hates him except me. We are all getting like, a deep he's... glimpse into JJ's psyche here. <laughs> <laughs> I just, he's so selfish and self centered, but I like it because he's true to himself. Like he he may mm-hmm. lie and connive and deceive and he's ultimately just the worst in that regard, but he's never lying to himself, I guess. So for me, I've always liked characters who were just like true. Mm-hmm. They're true to themselves, even if that truth is a is not a good one. <laughs> so I yeah, the the evil mastermind definitely. This is like Alan in uh, Demon's Lexicon. Yeah. You know, the thing is, like, when when I read Alan from other people's point of view, from, like, Nick's point of view or from May's point of view, I didn't like him. And then when you see him from Sin's point of view, I was like, oh, I get it. (laughs) I get it now. (laughs) It's like, yep. (laughs) Because from, and this is done on purpose, from other people's point of view, he's kind of, you know, mild-mannered and he cares about his brother. And I was like, eh, whatever. And then you find out, no. (laughs) There's 
something he's actually very, very like wrong. <laughs> There's something really deeply messed up about Alan. <laughs> and then I was like, ah, yes. <laughs> I was suddenly much more attractive character. <laughs> I have always meant to go back and read those books with that knowledge about Alan in mind in from mind, the beginning. Yeah. I haven't mm-hmm. done it yet, but I really should because I feel like it will be a very different reading experience. I think so too. I mean, I haven't reread those either. I think, and I have all of them. So I think, you know, that's definitely something I could do too, is like, just go back and reread them from, from the start and just be like, yeah, no, it's a little bit like the sixth sense Mm -hmm. where the first time you get that big reveal and then so clearly you have to watch the movie again to see if all the signs were there. And if you missed it, (laughs) um, (laughs) yeah. So those are tropes that we love. Then, so what about tropes that we don't love? tropes that we don't love. <sighs> you know, I had a specific one and now I can't remember what it is, but what about you? I'm sure it will trigger something in my head if I hear you talk about the one. alpha male. I yeah. Like I hate the alpha male. I, yeah, I, I don't, I don't find it attractive. I, okay. I'm going to be completely honest. I don't find masculinity all that attractive. <laughs> I mean, like the you know, like the like hyper masculinity, the sort of like broy, like muscled, you know, like I'm going to be forceful with you because I'm a man. I don't like that. I don't find that attractive at all. And for me, alpha males just are not attractive because of that. <laughs> I don't like it. Yeah, yeah. For me, my problem with the alpha male trope, aside from the fact that I don't find masculinity attractive, is they get kind of rapey in a way that I just don't like. Yeah. And the sort of forcefulness I don't find attractive. I don't like that often that they, it may not intentionally be so, but they kind of come across as I know better, you know, and... And then that sometimes gives birth to what smart bitches that's called the too stupid to live heroine where like basically the alpha, then the alpha male turns into like the dad when he's like, you shouldn't do this. And then this too stupid to live heroines like, no, you can't tell me what to do. So I'm going to do the exact thing that you told me not to do because it's stupid. And it just, I don't like this dynamic. I don't like the sort of traditional gender roles. It forces it's almost all like I. I mean, I've never seen an alpha male necessarily in gay romances, but like I, it just I don't like it. I don't find it attractive. I think it's actually kind of regressive as a trope. Now, I'm not going to shame anybody for liking the alpha male uh-huh. because clearly plenty of people do, and they, you know, and I think that's great. But just no, not for me. I mean, it kind of extends to like really masculine men in like actors and stuff, you know, like people who find Mm -hmm. like hyper masculine men attractive. I don't, I, I just mm, doesn't do anything for me. You know, like people who loved Charlie Hunnam from sons of anarchy. And I was kind of like, "Mm, no, (laughs) I thought of one that I hate. What? I hate women in refrigerators. Mm, yep. And this is a, like an actual literal trope and then one that I think that can be extended out. And so the literal trope originates from 
the comic book Green Lantern, where the I hero's girlfriend was it? I, I thought think it was, it was Green Spider-Man. Lantern. It wasn't a comic. I don't. I guess I don't know for sure which one. But the hero's girlfriend was murdered by the villain, and then her body was stuffed into the refrigerator for him to find. So he like opens the refrigerator, and she's there and dead, and that fuels him with such a rage, you know, that he goes on and whatever. And basically, you can distill the trope down to terrible things happening to women. Although, you know, this could apply to either sex or gender, terrible things happening to women in order to fuel a male character's character development, like to, to, to grow him as a character in, in his reaction to the terrible thing Mm -hmm. that happened to the woman, he is able to, you know, go and do other things and his character is pushed and stretched in these other ways. And it doesn't necessarily have to be outright murder, although sometimes it is, um, you know, but just anything terrible happening to one character in the romance that then spurs the other character in the romance to react and get more of a storyline. I hate it. I hate it. I hate it. I hate it. And I see it, you know, more and more ever since that particular trope was kind of brought to my attention. I suddenly see it constantly in everything. Yeah. And actually the fridging someone, it doesn't actually have to mean that that other person is killed because sometimes to mm-hmm. me you can throw another character under the bus to make room for either character development or to make room for another romantic relationship i don't like that i don't mm-hmm. like it when a character who, in whom i've been previously invested suddenly seems to have a totally different personality that makes him or her look unattractive like, mm-hmm. clearly is designed to make him or her look unattractive. I don't like that either. Um, another trope I utterly, utterly despise is the tragic lesbian. Mm. This this is an old one. Um, like, pulp, you know, fiction from, like, the 50s and 60s. It was, you had, like, these really trashy novels where, you know, you had, you know, lesbians or whatever, and one or both of them generally die horribly just mm-hmm. because they're lesbians. And, you know, you mm-hmm. would think that this trope would have died out um, in, in a more progressive era, but it actually hasn't. Mm-mm. No. Mm-mm. Well, you think Buffy, if you've watched Buffy, there's Willow and Tara. Is yes. Like, they are oh. the romantic couple of the show, and their relationship is nuanced and evolved and they spend this whole season sort of growing apart and they have difficulties in their relationship and they talk and work together to overcome them. And there's like all of these things, but it's a portrayal of a real nuanced loving relationship. And the show brings them through all these highs and lows. And then they kill off Tara so that Willow will become the villain of the season. I hated it. (laughs) And they, you know, they kill her and then Willow goes dark and, you know, because she's lost the love of her life, she, you know, loses it and goes off the deep end and becomes evil and does all these terrible things. But it's just like, oh, it's so terrible. <laughs> it's so terrible. Oh, it just, it, it, every time it makes me mad. And it, I think it's part of the reason I like Sarah Waters so much because, like, you know, she is a lesbian writer and all of her, not all of them, but, uh, you know, her first book, Tipping the Velvet, had a happy ending. And I was like, ah, it exists. Because, <laughs> like, like, even even Patricia Highsmith, who was another lesbian author, and she was, in fact, writing during the 50s and 60s and 70s, 
um, they most recently adapted her novel, The Price Carol. of Salt. Carol, yeah. And Carol was unusual for the time because that had a, quote, happy ending. Because, spoiler, you guys, nobody dies. <laughs> nobody dies. Um, and both Carol and Therese end up together. <laughs> but at the price, at basically at the cost of Carol's family, you know, at the cost of her being able to see her daughter... So yes, it's a happy ending in that the romantic relationship is together, but it's at a it's a, it's a pretty high cost for Carol. Um, so I mean, I really love that book. I also highly recommend The Price of Salt and also the movie, which is gorgeous. Um, but I just the the tragic lesbian. I just like you, you know, and I just want happy stories for women. Just it it seems like women just get the short end of the stick. <laughs> A lot in fiction um so just like anytime i see two female characters in a romantic relationship in a book i'm pretty much on pins and needles because i'm like i bet one or both of you is going to die <sighs> and i just like why can't you just have to have a happy ending <sighs> so yeah that's definitely a trope i trope i despise oh and i also hate the beautiful broken boy mm-hmm Okay. Also not attractive to me. I like yeah. openness and sincere communication in my in my romantic affairs and then this includes my fictional partners. So when when someone's like I have a secret and it's you know if I tell you the secret it's you know I'm just like oh come on like if if this person was at worth anything you would mm-hmm. tell them and then you guys talk through your problems together mm-hmm. as opposed to having this like weird passive aggressive avoidant thing i just mm. well it's fake tension yeah. i feel like whenever that happens in a relationship where you know one person isn't honest about who they are or something that they've done or some other vital piece of information that the other partner should know that you're doing that to create tension because there's no tension naturally there. You need to create some kind of obstacle in this relationship. And so you have one character withhold information. But if these characters actually had a conversation and that information came up, then all of the tension would evaporate. So it's like a false conflict or false tension. And I hate that because like I said before, I need real tension in my relationships to be able to become invested in them. Yeah. I, yeah. You know, okay, there is actually, now that I think about it, there is a trope I liked when I was a teenager that I don't love now, and that's the reincarnated lovers. (laughs) 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 Well, not necessarily reincarnated, but, you know, like, our love is destined to be kind of a thing. Yeah, through the ages. Mm -hmm, Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. I, which I will admit when I was like 14, totally gobbled, like totally gobbled that up. And now I think looking back on it, I'm just like, no, it doesn't do anything for me. <laughs> Cause like you said, it takes all the tension out. If you are meant to be together, then what's the real obstacle? Mm-hmm. You know, there's the legwork is not done it's not done for you rather you know like well you know they're gonna end up together because they're destined to be together so are you gonna take any time to actually develop that relationship um and you like sometimes destined lovers is okay um but the sort of like nowadays when i when i come across it in fiction often you get the kind of like the soulmate 
or the mm-hmm. bonded pair, you know, something like that or whatever. I, mm, I don't like it because to me it kind of removes the tension or the work both characters have to put into that relationship to make me believe in it. I think, I think that's more or less our discussion mm-hmm. about love interests. I mean, we could go on and on and on and on about this for forever and ever and ever and ever and ever. <laughs> but we, we've been running quite, uh, quite long, so I think we should probably move on to our next segments. So what have you been reading? I actually have not read a single new thing this week. Nothing has come in from the library, so I'm still reading uh, Trickster's Choice, but uh, nothing new. What about you? Uh, I am reading Challenger Deep by Neil Schusterman. Uh, that came in the library. Uh, Beth and I talked about this one. This is a National Book Award winner for young people's literature, so I'm super looking forward to that. I just finished Fire by Kristen Kishore on audiobook. And Ooh. I just I just got approved for the next Sarah Reese Brennan book, her retelling of A Tale of Two Cities, Tell the Wind and Fire. I just got approved from for for that from NetGalley, so I am super excited to read that. <laughs> <laughs> I love Sarah Reese Brennan, you guys, so I'm always like, Yes, yes, I'm so excited. So that that's what I'm reading now. <laughs> So are you working are you, on anything? Um, I am working on some things. Still that same YA. Right now I'm trying to write my long, shitty synopsis. Um, mm-hmm. And I have made some pretty good headway. I was um, I had some time this past weekend where I got a day to myself and got to do a lot of writing. And I got um, about 1,200 words done, which doesn't sound like a ton to get you know, for several hours of writing time, but, um, it, those were hard, hard fought words to get down on the page. So (laughs) I feel pretty good about that. Yeah. I haven't made any headway on any of my writing projects. Um, I, you know, went to, after about two years of struggling with my bipolar disorder and I haven't been on meds for a while, but I decided that I've been struggling in a way that just my support group is it's not enough so Mm -hmm. i went to the doctor and asked to be put back on medication so hopefully when i'm stabilized in that in that regard i think hopefully i'll be able to go back to being creatively productive because i really just haven't been feeling creatively productive i feel stoppered or that it's not that i don't want to work on it but i just i can't I don't just every day is a struggle and every day is a fight. So I think mm-hmm. when it's that hard, when it normally isn't for me, that's the thing is like when it normally isn't that difficult for me, I think when it's that hard, it's, it's time that I step outside and try not to fix it by myself or cope with it by myself and go put be put back on medication and, you know, get my, brain chemistry back in order so i haven't i haven't worked on anything creative in that regard so and so are you enjoying anything else any off menu recommendations any off menu recommendations i have not really been doing too much i did just start watching avatar the last airbender Yay! but i can't yeah i can't talk about it at length because we are doing a, 
another podcast about <laughs> the last airbender and I have to talk yes, about it on that podcast. Yes. So that won't be out for quite a while. Um, so if that's something you're interested in listening to, we'll tell you more about it later. It's not going to come for quite a while. We're just doing some prep now, but, um, so that has, has been what I've been watching lately. Um, and other than that, not too much. Yeah, I am. I'm two episodes away from finishing Life is Strange, um, but I haven't gotten around to finishing it, partially because of, you know, dealing with bipolar disorder issues um, and mostly reading. I feel like reading is the only thing I've had energy for. So I've mostly been reading and haven't been consuming anything else. So, yeah. So I think... I think that's it for this week then. I mean, like I said, we could have gone on forever and ever and ever about <laughs> I know. About I know. this. We've talked quite enough. <laughs> yeah, we we've we've talked enough, so uh I think we can definitely definitely call an end to this one. That's all for this week. Next week we will be talking about queries again. Uh it's gonna be the anatomy of a query letter. So Kelly and I are gonna go over how, basically how to write one, how to dissect the story down into a query. So uh, you guys definitely want to check in for that. As always, if you want more, please subscribe via iTunes, Stitcher, Podcast Pickle, or your podcast provider of choice. And if you like us, please, please rate and review when you get a chance. It helps other listeners find the podcast, and it really means a lot to us to hear your feedback. And I know you guys are listening. We, we see you guys tweet at us and enjoying it. So if you guys could just like leave us a review on iTunes, that would be great. <laughs> um, and if you want more pub crawl goodness, you can go to our website, publishingcrawl.com, where we have many more posts and articles about various aspects of reading, writing, and the publishing industry. You can also follow us on Twitter at pubcrawlblog, as well as on Tumblr, Facebook, and Instagram at publishingcrawl. You can follow me, JJ, at SJ Jones, that's S-J-A-E-J-O-N-E-S, on Twitter, or my website at sjjones.com. And you can follow me, Kelly, at Bookish Chick on Twitter or Instagram. Our theme music is Quirky Dog by Kevin McLeod, and our logo is designed by Aaron Bowman, author of Vengeance Road, available now wherever books are sold. If you have any further questions, comments, or feedback, feel free to email us at publishingcrawl at gmail.com or send us an ask through Tumblr. Thanks so much for listening. Bye. Bye. What does Maid Marian do aside from play shuttlecock? lot of my own thinking.